travel. Everybody, we are back and we are already at episode 20 in our inaugural season here at the Dime for Midnight podcast. I'm Case. And this is Carrie. And this episode is all about the Alfred Hitchcock thriller classic Rear Window, or as we like to call, We Heart Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and Carrie's already getting annoyed because I'm going to do a lot of my James Stewart from Indiana, Pennsylvania voice throughout the rest of this episode. She's shaking her head no, but she can't resist my Jimmy Stewart voice. Really? Really? Sweet cheeks. <laughs> Don't call me that. All right. I guess I'm being a Chad. Absolutely. Oh, I think it's time to reel it back then. Anyways, guys, if you were with us last week <clears throat> in episode 19, we talked the Canadian slasher that marketed itself as a movie featuring a Wendigo creature, but did not have a Wendigo creature. Yes, we are talking 1981's Ghost Keeper. If you haven't checked that one out, please do so. A lot of great Canadian horror there. We're going to feature some more Canadian horror in season two. Um, Next week, we are going to take a break from our regularly scheduled program and these full episodes to feature a bonus episode Bonus episode 20.5 is going to be with Miss Kim Yates, owner, founder of the amazing and scariest, and I'm going to throw down with anybody who disagrees with me, Kim's Cryptonite Mill in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania. I got him. Uh, I can't even talk, fellas and ladies. But next, <laughs> cringy, cringy Chad's here now. Cringy Chad, you need to settle down. Okay, Jimmy, I will. All right, then get on with it, man. So... Friday, 6.30. Jimmy's getting a little excited. Um, We've got Kim's Crypt, and we talked all of our attractions. We talked the history of how our business came to be. We had so much fun. She showed us around behind the scenes, found myself riding on the back of a a golf cart. Um, Yeah, she really gave us the real deal behind the scenes tour. So It was amazing. Kim, thank you. Can't wait to release your episode next week. Um, got some other interviews on the horizon, hopefully throughout the, the course of uh, our inaugural season. Guys, as always, you can find us on Linktree. Check us out on our socials, DFM Mailwolf on Twitter and Insta. Get that link or the RSS. You can take that on your favorite platforms. Carrie, let's dive right in to yeah. the 1954 <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock now, containment movie, Carrie. Now, when did you first see this movie ever? Can you remember? I think it was in high school. Nice I had an, I had uh, an ex girlfriend between her with the Audrey Hepburn movies, and then my grandparents. Really, I would say on my mom's side, um, especially yeah, mom's side. They would show me a lot of the Jimmy Stewart movies. Definitely, Hitchcock was fairly big in my house. <clears throat> One of the first horror movies I ever watched, of course, was Psycho. But they were like, "Hey, it's not just about Psycho." There's all these other things that came before Psycho. Yeah. And when you guys, we'll get into casting creators in a little bit, but um, Alfred Hitchcock didn't start his career with Psycho. No. Okay. He had 
a career that spanned 35, 40 years, even before that, even, even before talkies started in the thirties. Yeah. All right. This guy got his, he cut his teeth vaudeville 1920s when there were still silent films going on. Um, yeah, of course we didn't kind of start knowing who Alfred, excuse me, Hitchcock was until around the 40s sometime. Yeah. And um, perhaps, perhaps, and we'll get into this a little bit later, we will do one other Hitchcock movie a little bit later this year. Uh, Got something in the works possibly for October. And yeah, so moving right along. Carrie, let's talk about, this is just one of the posters. There's actually quite a bit of them. Um, there's one out there that was the typical Hitchcock poster that had the big, uh, explosive yellow, uh, watch this now, if you could still stomach it after watching psycho, he, he was very marketing marketing wise. He was pretty ahead of his time. Beware all those kind of things on his posters. He always had like his little Hitchcock disclaimer on all of his posters that that it makes it for a cool experience. I right love before you watch it. leading into some of the movies. If you watch, there's these little blurbs that he used to do to introduce the movies, yeah. which are fun. Guillermo del Toro is starting to do a little bit of that Hitchcockian stuff before his, yeah. um, what was that Netflix show that he came out the with? Curious the Curious Cabinet? Um, cabinet, cabinet of, of Curiosities. Curiosities. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I didn't realize the cabinets could have a life of their own <laughs> until I met you, Miss Sambelli. <laughs> Why am I miss? Mrs. Zambelli, pardon me. <laughs> you think a gentleman that was born and raised in the 30s and 40s would have some sort of, uh, you know what I'm saying. Anyways, case on to you. All right, Jimmy, settle down. Um, guys, before Jimmy takes my wife away from me, hey, I didn't say I would do that. You take that back. All right, all right, I take it back. So we're going to talk. Are you having a one-man show over there? <laughs> Listen, the problem is, what is this wine that you gave me? Because I feel like it's starting to make me even goofier. We might slide it, into Jimmy it was Stewart. A, it was a birthday gift. Even more than you had hoped for. <laughs> <laughs> it was a birthday gift. Yeah, when you turned 21, right? That's right. So what'd you get for your 40th birthday? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> what's this? What's this? What do you got over there? Of course, hey, Jake, the Midnight Traveler, I know you're listening, bud. She's got me another. She's got me another Italian wine, <laughs> although it's a claret by none other than the uh, director, legendary director, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, and I've actually never had this before. We've had other stuff. We've got no Coppola movies on the docket for our inaugural season, Carrie, but we've got two for sure in season two. That's right. Stay tuned, guys. We always like to. Probably, my guess is sometime around the holidays we'll release our season two. Preview. Although we did have it. We did do one of his nephew's movies. And who is that? Nicolas Cage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked Renfield. Renfield. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I know Jake's got some other ideas for some Nick Cage movies. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so you've got the containment factor, and the poster is representative of that containment factor. The movie's called Rear, Rear Window. I love all the old posters and movies now in Technicolor. I, I just love that. Was that was the new thing. Yeah, I It know. was the new technology. Well, and if you guys pay attention to the credits at the end of this movie, they talk about the color restoration. This was 1954. This movie did not originally come out in color. They had to restore it. Technicolor helped them with ink transfers for this movie. So you've got the bricks of the building from his neighborhood, the staircases. You've got 
a couple of different neighbors featured on the windows. And of course, you've got one Jimmy Stewart with Grace Kelly standing behind him, looking over his shoulder as he peers out, as he does his little voyeur gig night in and night out because he broke his leg in a what automobile accident um he was taking a picture on a race track yeah and he got in the way his boss told him and doesn't tell you didn't tell you (laughs) had to stand right on the racetrack (laughs) yeah um and it's right away you could tell everybody's having a good time in their little apartments but jeffrey's stewart's character is noticing something a little bit strange a little bit one neighbor off a little bit spooky what's going on with this guy and the jewelry and the suitcases and going back and forth at 2 33 a.m in In the the rain in the rain and yeah grace kelly it's not about him wanting to greet his lovely wife again and again and again the taglines carry for this movie and i could hear it's not like the voiceover guy from the 70s and 80s okay if it was the voiceover guy would say in deadly danger because they saw too much. No. It yeah, would be. Yeah, but here's the thing. He really didn't see it. He didn't. He saw enough. He saw enough to draw conclusions. Alert, given the end of, the end of this movie. I'm trying to do a voiceover Sorry. from the 50s. So, through his weird window and the eye of his powerful camera, he watched a great city tell on itself, expose its cheating ways, and murder. That's more like Might it. have been more 30s and 40s than 50s. Carrie, read the next couple ones while I recover. Suspense of screaming proportions. Original print ad. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Zambelli, you're reading all the text in parentheses. I think you need to back that thing up. <laughs> Gonna do rap songs in Jimmy Stewart's voice. Next bullet, please. See it. If your nerves can stand it after sicko. There you go. Don't read the parentheses words. Yeah. All right. Moving right along. <laughs> the most unusual and intimate journey into human emotions ever filmed. I don't know it, about that one. It only takes one witness to spoil the perfect crime or seeing isn't always believing. Hey, my favorite one is the second bullet because it just i could see the words popping up on the screen yeah expose its cheating ways and murder and it sounds like something that would have been in the theaters they just want to capture your attention with the words over the screen i used to love that about old trailers i mean this is obviously 30 years before our time yeah but uh still guys i mean i grew i grew up watching this stuff with my mom so you know before we dive too far into the other elements of rear window carry, where does rear window rank among kind of your overall Hitchcock movies? What's your favorite Hitchcock movie? I'll start with that. So it's not, it's actually, it, it's tough because it's, it's a cross between Psycho and it's a cross between that and North by Northwest. And I mean, really the birds gave me nightmares until this day. I even have like a fear of birds. So say what you will. Yeah. I've noticed over being with you for 20 years and (laughs) your ridiculous nervousness around our feathered friends. 
I'm getting better at it now that our backyard's full of them. So at some point, we're going to do a bonus episode of a Hitchcock movie with Jimmy Stewart that you've not watched. That's another horror adjacent called Rope. No. I how how dare you, Carrie? It's the only one. Is the name of that episode. It's the only one <laughs> that I haven't seen with Jimmy Stewart. How dare you? You might want to check out some of my earlier works. <laughs> you going to Washington? Uh, not that early. That's not horror adjacent enough for this podcast, Mrs. Zambelli. <laughs> um, guys, physical media and streaming. You know, even before I go into this, I'm going to have to say, <coughs> pardon me, that um, I'm going to go with Rope is my favorite. That's one that I've seen that you haven't. Psycho is my next one. I just like the darker ones. Um, guys, rear window, physical media and streaming. You could pick this one up for pretty inexpensive. I mean, if you find a used one, I think you can get it for like three or four bucks. Most of these regular old DVDs are seven or eight dollars. Blu-rays, $13.99. You can stream this sucker for uh, probably somewhere between five and ten bucks. By that point, what are you going to do? <laughs> Cough all over my friend Case here. Um yeah, by the time you spend that, you might as well spend like eight bucks and just get yourself a copy of the DVD. They actually have a whole separate 4K that's separate from the Blu-ray release. So a lot of these kind of well-known classics, you got a lot of different options. And hey, if you are a VHS hound, you can get a used VHS for about four bucks right now. So if you gotta have you gotta play this sucker on VCR like you would have back in the day with your parents or grandparents. Stick it in that VCR, four or five bucks, and it's yours. It you might pay more for shipping than the actual VHS. <laughs> Is it wrong that I there's something I love about VHS tapes? No, we still have your uh, VHS DVD combo from the mid two thousands <laughs> from your room. Yeah, where on one hand we were watching uh, what on DVD? Oh God, oh God! <laughs> you know what I was trying not to watch ever again? Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights. Well, we have that on DVD. And then also turning around and watching Shag on VHS. No, someone stole my Shag. <laughs> you know I want to do Austin Powers right now. Shagadelic. No, that's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart doing, doing Austin Powers. Yeah, baby. Shagarific. <laughs> so wrong. Get in my belly. <laughs> I'm going to eat you. <laughs> Just get, gets worse. Stop. Okay. Cast and creators. Guys, everything that needs to be said about Alfred Hitchcock, the one and only, has been said. I do want to remind everybody a little bit of some other movies that are not the usual. And reminder, he had a couple of shorts or unfinished projects in the 1920s. The first full movie that he completed was The Pleasure Garden in 1925. A couple other of his early ones, The Mountain Eagle, The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog in 1927, When Boys Leave Home, Easy Virtue, The Ring, The Farmer's Wife, Champagne, uh, The Manx Men, Blackmail, Juno and the Paycock, Sound Test for Blackmail, which was a short. We've got things like, uh, may open up the 30s with an elastic affair, Murder, the Skin Game, okay, Mary, East of Shanghai, probably the one that helped to put him on the map 
was 1934's The Man Who Knew Too Much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he moved through the 40s with movies like Suspicion, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Saboteur, Did, Shadow of a Doubt, didn't Life Didn't Suspicion Belt. win an Oscar? Um, or some kind of award. I feel, I feel like... Yeah, it actually, you're correct. It won an Oscar. Yep. Five wins and two nominations in total, as a matter of fact, um, across all the different awards, not just the Oscar. But yes, it did win an Oscar. Thank you for remembering that. Good on you, man. Um, okay. Ended the 1940s with my favorite, Rope. And if you guys aren't familiar with Rope, okay, there's two guys that attempt to prove that they committed a crime. They host this party after strangling a former classmate to death. And of course they are um, kind of parading around this fact that they killed somebody and they're trying, they're, they're tested it. They're seeing if they can get away with this. Um, and, and guys, we mentioned some of the other ones. <clears throat> I'm surprised Carrie, I didn't hear you mention vertigo. Yeah. That, yeah. I love that one. Um, some other ones that people don't tend to talk about is like Marnie. Oh, Speaking of Marnie. Kaleidoscope, Topaz is another one. I love Topaz, by the way. I mean, speaking of Marnie, mm-hmm. there's rumor that Hitchcock wanted the princess of Monaco, Grace Kelly. That's right. To star in Marnie. And look, speaking of the leads of this movie, um, you know... Jimmy Stewart's filmography, Carrie, uh, probably started getting noticed around the time of movies like The Last Gangster, Navy Blue and Gold, Of Human Hearts, Vivacious Lady, The Shop Warm Angel, Shop Worn Angel, excuse me, You Can't Take It With You, mm-hmm. Made for Each Other. Made for Each Other was a very good it's movie. It's a Wonderful World. Um, that, I think that's one of the ones that everybody knows. It's a Wonderful Life. Well, there's a whole other one. It's a wonderful world. Yeah. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I, that's a really good movie. Have you seen that? And if and if I don't stop my Jimmy Stewart voice, Carrie's going to filibuster this episode. Ha, have, have you seen that movie? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was required viewing yeah. in, I don't know, junior high or high school or something like that. Um, didn't we watch it in one of our journalism classes we did. too? We did. Um, of course, Rope with Jimmy Stewart, right? Uh, we're talking about Rear Window today, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Spirit of St. Louis, Night Passage, Vertigo, of course, is very another. very good in Vertigo. The FBI story, The Mountain Road, Two Road Together, Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, My Three Sons, Take Her, She's Mine, Cheyenne Autumn, Dear Bridget, Shenandoah, um, and guys, you look up Airport 77, um, Really started slowing down once the 80s came around. He had a few different things, some TV movies in the 80s. Um, he actually voiced Wiley in the animated movie, An American Tale, Five Goes West. You remember that one? Yeah, I do. Um, Carrie, tell me a little bit about Grace Kelly. What are some of your favorite Grace Kelly oh, movies outside it, of this one? It, it actually was her last movie that she made, High Society, Frank Sinatra, and Bing Crosby are in that. Yeah. And it, it was just, that was an amazing cast. There's The Country Girl. Yeah. Which she made in the same year as Rear Window. There's To Catch a Thief. That was another good one. There's also, also a 19, she made this movie in 1954 along with Rear Window. <laughs> Dial M for Murder. Yeah. 
And I think she made she made all three of the Hitchcock movies back to back. Um, you know, she didn't have a long career. No. But man, did she burn bright and fast. And unfortunately, in the early 80s, she passed away from an automobile yeah. accident. So sad. There, um, there was an article that I read where Hitchcock said that specifically in Rear Window, the scenes with Grace Kelly in it, that what she did was so subtle and sexy that nobody else could do it at the time. And oh, it, it was definitely ahead of her time. And I'm going to yeah. touch on that a little bit in quotes and dialogue. Um, so writers for this, we have to get the writers that are due. John Michael Hayes, Cornell Woolrich. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've got, again, James Stewart as L.B. Jeffries. Grace Kelly as Lisa Fremont. Wendell Corey as Tom Doyle, the detective. We've got Thelma Ritter, the Stella, the uh, insurance company nurse. And, of course, the menacing, towering. Raymond Burr as Lars Thorwald. You've got all the other tenants in the neighborhood. Uh, Miss Lonely Hearts, played by Judith Evelyn. Um, you had the songwriter upstairs, Ross Bagdasarian. Excuse me, Bagdasarian. You had Georgine Darcy as Miss Torso. Mm -hmm. Sarah Burner and the uh, woman on the fire escape um, with her poor little dog. Frank Cady, man on the fire escape. Um, you had Jessalyn Fax as Miss Hearing Aid. You had some of the newlywed characters, and the list goes on. Yeah. Quite a bit of characters that don't really have a lot of words, but have a huge impact on the containment factor in this movie, on the suspicion of this movie, on the whole damn theme of this entire movie. It's actually a very unique setup for a movie where you can have memorable characters that have next to no lines. They, I mean, most of them all, don't. And most they're all crucial don't. to building yeah. this little world the in this movie. suspense, yeah. And how is it that you live in this neighborhood and he doesn't know any of their names? Not one of them. Yeah, he's got nicknames for them. Yeah. Well, I can't speak to living in New York City. Me neither. I mean, I don't know what it's like, but I do know we've where... lived. We've lived in another place where no matter how many times you waved your hand, nobody wanted... Nobody, yeah. You think you have three heads just by saying hi, good morning, waving. Yeah. Um, that wasn't us. No, no. We were brought up to be neighborly, to get to know your neighbors, not to be best friends. Well, we've got great neighbors, but <clears throat> there's some people that they just don't want to be bothered or they're grumpy or crotchety all the time. Yeah. So anyways, moving right along to favorite character. Carrie, how about you? So my actual favorite character is Thelma Ritter, played by Stella. She's the nurse that's sent over by the insurance yeah. company, and she's very witty very wise and she adds this whole element of like well maybe we should do this or maybe we should do that or maybe you you know she's talking him like into sense and she's talking grace kelly into sense so to yeah, speak she she's is the voice of reason, reason. <laughs> yeah <laughs> jinx you owe me some more claret wine over here i think i'm running out soon okay well listen i'm gonna give us the reports here while you go on and on about this thelma Ritter character I mean, I know I've seen her in other stuff before, and she, she's just, she's very witty. All of her roles, she's very witty. And, man, the, the remark she made. Don't take that. That's my, I'm that's sorry, my glass one. What the F? The remark she made to Jimmy Stewart's character 
Jeffrey. There you go. That's yours. Thank you. There's your wine, sweetheart. Um, about how being married to her husband has been one of the greatest rides. And I'm Whoa, para- now. What paraphrasing. Are you t- what are you talking about there, Stella? <laughs> Stella, get her groove back. <laughs> Stop. No, she says that she's enjoyed every minute of being married to her husband is what she's saying. Yeah. And that she wouldn't change a thing. And so you have that aspect of, on relationships and he's talking to her like he's going to break up with Lisa, played by Grace Kelly. Hmm. And she's trying to talk him, you know, at some point you're going to need to settle down and it's important that you want to be with them. Who do you want to be with? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> and I'll touch on that in a little bit here, but um, I, I'm going with Grace Kelly as Lisa Fremont, girlfriend of Jimmy Stewart's LB Jeffries. Uh, she is, at one point, whenever you first see her character, and she's reasoning with him that, like, hey, you know, what does it matter where I come from, which is, what, the West End or something like that, or Manhattan, she, somewhere in Manhattan. She, you can tell she she came from money. Yeah. Park Avenue type, right? Uh, he's not. He's the traveling working guy. He makes good money. Um, he's getting to be a well-known photographer, but not high society <laughs> like no. she is. Yeah, you know she's a she's a New York Paris Fashion. fashionista. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yes, and you know we'll go into dialogue and quotes a little bit more. I've got some some other feelings around all these characters but favorite death and effects spoilers guys if you haven't seen rear window three two one um we've only got one human death one almost suicide and unfortunately one dead poochie so for a second there i thought you were laughing when i said one dead poochie damn carrie you're out of feelings tonight or something um no i was more upset by the dead dog than the off-screen death of a wife I mean, I got to wonder, since he only rented the place for six months, how far in advance did he plan this? I mean, does he go from woman to woman? Is he like a scammer? I didn't get the killing for insurance or collection of jewelry in this case. The, the Their estate, basically. Yeah. Um, I didn't have that take. I thought that this was truly they were together for a while um this was his wife and that because she was an invalid he had just finally he was fed up there was even a lot of instances where like even you could tell he was even not necessarily to dispose of her body that's true he was excited to dispose of the body but you could tell he was always itching to get out of there and away from her even you know they had two sets of windows in their apartment And half of the time while his wife, the wife character was still alive, he would take her the stuff in the bed and he couldn't wait to get back into the other room separated by a door, sit down, get on the phone, read his newspaper or magazine, smoke a cigar. It was like he had her contained. He didn't want to spend any of his free time with her. He had had it being the caretaker type. And that's not to say, because, you know, this is the 1950s and there was the whole thing about men are the breadwinners, women stay home and do this, that, and the other, take care of the home, whatnot. You know, back then, all the frivolous things that men don't or 
are not interested in it, apparently. So he was not interested in having to be the breadwinner and come home and take care of somebody. So I would really like to go back in the 1950s and 60s and so on articles to see how many husbands or wives killed each other. Like there's always the serial killers of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. What about the homemaker or the breadwinner that just snapped and finally fucking had it with the whole arrangement that for all intents and purposes were way ahead of their time and realized that this situation isn't tenable for a very long time. Nobody's talking about their feelings. Everything swept under the rug in the 1950s and 60s. You didn't talk about your problems. You just didn't. They were busy. They were also very, very busy. When you think about uh, it. Yeah, but I would argue people had more time on their free time on their hands. People didn't have to work as long hours as they do now. No. I think we're starting to get back to some of that. Yeah. I think people have, have had it with the usual. Being in recruitment in my normie job, just a lot of the trends. I, I, I watched this movie with that eye of what are people going through during this time period and the roles that they have at home. Um, And yeah, the coming home and being in that small apartment together with a lot of time on your hands. Look at all those people. They had time for hobbies. They had time for playing the piano or songwriting or their plants or their art projects. That one woman creating that mannequin dummy looking, what the hell was that thing? Sculpture. Sculpture. Okay. I guess it's sculpture, but I just thought that the whole fifties dynamic with the husband, wife, man, woman, I didn't see it the way that you saw it where he's done this before. I think this was all he could ever handle, and why would he ever want to keep repeating it? Then again, maybe he has gotten away with it before. I don't think we can say for sure. No. And that's the great thing about great filmmakers. They let you, with your own imagination, fill in the blanks, uh, which ends up being scarier, I think. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they, they showcase shots of her jewelry, of the wife's jewelry, um, I got to agree with you that the dog's death was the most impactful. Uh, and when I say that, I mean a death or a tragedy that made you sad. That was not the most impactful moment in the entire movie, but just related to death and tragedy. No, the dog, the dog found too much. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie, what is your, I have to say though, the scene of the dog owner and she's screaming at all the neighbors about that was heart wrenching. That was heart wrenching. Yeah, what what do you, what do you had to kill him just because he liked you? Yeah, just because he came up to you. I'm yeah. paraphrasing, but you get yeah. the gist. It was a very powerful moment, actually, in the film. It really was. Poor little our our puppy sitting behind Carrie here. I remember in that moment we were watching it with ghostly puppers and zombie toots, and we all had to stop what we were doing and go over and kiss Pumpkin just because we felt so bad about the movie talk. <laughs> Meanwhile, it was a prop, and the real dog's probably wagging its tail behind yeah. the camera somewhere, yeah. getting spoiled. <laughs> um. It's that it's that old Sam Neill Jeff, you know, he's chuckling when people are getting murdered, but he's bawling his eyes out when the dog dies. <laughs> Love it. Um, Carrie, favorite dialogue quote or moment? So when the nurse is lecturing Jeffrey while massaging him, she's telling him that again, everyone settles down eventually and he should stop analyzing everything and just go for it. She talks about how everyone's different, has different tastes. And you know, and also yeah, there was the there was the juxtaposition between their two lifestyles. He was the yeah. traveling working man. She was the socialite. Right. But and she was working. She was a hard worker. She was a hard worker, but 
she at first grace kelly's character starts telling him like oh you know i could get you 12 different gigs right away basically yeah and he's like could you in a meeting talking you up yeah and and she's like yeah you can't get that kind of free promotion and he's like yeah couldn't you just see me with my combat boots on and a beard walking into like your fashion Fashion. thing she's like yeah i could see you in a nice navy suit Mm -hmm. a nice talk about fashion change a nice blue flannel navy suit yeah. um probably did look good for back probably, then. yeah but anyways you know when we first are introduced to grace kelly you know jimmy stewart he's like waking up and it's almost dreamlike um oh yeah she, she greets him <laughs> with a kiss a very sensual kiss mm-hmm. um you know and then there's the other moment where she's bringing over that little suitcase to show she can handle packing light and handle his lifestyle mm-hmm. it was very risque for 1954 and even what about some dialogue that you liked one second i'm getting there oh pardon me madam don't rush me sorry about that jimmy settle down no wait that was you that interrupted her oh okay you're right when ghostly popper saw that she was like what's that for and she was just like she's like for a sleepover she's like Oh, a sleepover. Oh, okay. It was, she was just, and I was just like, yeah, back then that didn't happen. They didn't have sleepovers. I won't tell if you won't tell. And that's basically what he says. I won't tell my landlord. Apparently you were supposed to tell your landlord if you had sleepovers. Well, see, back in my day, they would think that you were subletting the place out. You're not really supposed to have tenants sleepover. They could charge rent back in that day for somebody who's staying there that's not supposed to stay there. Okay. Oh, okay. I understand that. So, my favorite dialogue from Lisa. The last thing Mrs. Thorwald would leave behind would be her wedding ring. Stella, do you ever leave yours at home? And Stella goes, the only way somebody would get that off would be to chop off my finger. Let's go down to the garden and find out what's buried there. Lisa says, why not? I always wanted to meet Mrs. Thorwald. I love that. That, I love that. that is scene so, is so like. It kind of makes you shudder a little bit. It's like, oh, I know what she's talking about. There is a body down there. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so well written. That's That evokes such a feeling of like, oh, yeah. Like, gotcha. Shit is going to get real. Gotcha. They're not just going down there to investigate. They kind of have a feeling that there's body parts there under the flowers. Um, I'm going to go, by the way, the, um, the cop character Doyle, Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if the French connection got the character's name from this movie, Popeye Doyle, because he was a cop too. Anyways, I just had that moment popped into my head. (laughs) The cop didn't approve of the, of the Jeffrey sleepover. (laughs) I just love he's sitting there drinking the brandy he's like looking around he's looking at the case he, he's he looking loved up. looking at mrs torso miss torso though oh yeah he did and and it, jimmy stewart i'll be jeffries looks over noticing him noticing mm-hmm. the uh, bag the sleepover bag he's like careful doyle mm-hmm. <laughs> he's basically saying don't say a word about it <laughs> yeah um i love when any time that this movie cuts to Grace Kelly in Jimmy Stewart's arms and she's tenderly kissing him, not just on the lips, but on the cheek and on his chin, very sensual moments with the kissing in this film that no one does today. 
everyone just wants to cut to the intercourse, but skip over the appetizer, which is usually much sexier than the sex itself. Yeah. Whatever happened to foreplay? The foreplay, but just the sensualness of them. Like I, I was, I felt more hot and bothered by watching her just the husky voice whispering to him and kissing all over his neck. And I'm like, man, hubba hubba. <laughs> Get me some of that. <laughs> I mean, I know we joke about the cringy Chad thing yeah. that I do, but no, seriously, as even as a guy, okay, it's okay, dudes. You can admit that there is very sensual, intimate moments in movies that <laughs> get you revved up a little bit more so than the sex. There's not enough movies, especially new ones nowadays, that show the intimacy between two people. And yeah, the kissing's good, but man, the dialogue to go along with the kissing. Holy smokes, man. Um, dialogue. <laughs> and this dialogue hints to the sensual, not hints, is a part of yeah. those those intimate sensual moments between Lisa Fremont and L.B. Jeffries. She asks, how's your... I'm not even going to attempt to do a Grace Kelly voice because she deserves better than okay you're gonna do it with me <laughs> jesus god i'm gonna take a sip of wine for this you're gonna crack me up there i'm probably not gonna do it justice. i don't remember grace kelly coughing all over <laughs> jimmy stewart <laughs> oh yeah it's so sexy the way you cough all over me <laughs> oh shit <laughs> not gonna get me <clears throat> fuck you you're getting me to cough fuck you <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to be able to finish this. No. I don't think we're going to get Damn it. Drink some more of that wine. It'll be just fine. All right, I'm good. Take a swig. You ready? Young lady, let's do this. How's your leg? Hurts a little. Your stomach? Empty as a football. And your love life? Not too active. Anything else bothering you? Uh-huh. Who are you? I think Sean Connery slipped in there a little bit for a split second. There was Sean Connery. Well, hello there, Miss Fremont. Sean, you need to leave us alone. I'll do whatever I damn well please. Three's the crowd. Oh, don't go there. We're going to honor those that have passed by not going into that route. So... Yeah, again, we don't feature foreplay and playful pillow talk. Intimate moments between two characters. Somebody out there, get a thriller going. Like Watcher did a little bit of it, but yeah. they jumped straight to the sex. If they would have had more intimate dialogue moments, moments in Watcher, it would have reminded me of rear window moments. Yeah. Um, favorite moment, because I know you talked about some of them. Um, very heartwarming moment. We fast forward to the end of the movie, Mrs. Torso, who the entire movie, she's basically dancing and showing her ass off to the She's a ballerina. She's a ballerina. Yeah. But you know, they purposely made her move that she, way. She, yeah, she's, she's making Dumps money like a on truck. the side. She's <laughs> making money on the side. Why is she making money on the side? Just cause she goes around dancing half naked in her apartment. No, she's dancing. She's learning. Oh, plays like she's like in the theater she's going to shows you know we're gonna get letters and socials from ballerinas saying how dare you call me a prostitute 
meant she's making a little buddy on the side (laughs) Um, i meant like yeah she's she's, not just a housewife well yeah and what's interesting to me is the way that she's throughout the movie she's keeping all those two or three suitors away she's keeping that bay yeah and she's keeping her mind off the fact that her real man which is the average army joe look at this little frumpy pudgy looking dude he's nothing to look at he finally comes home at the end of the movie we don't see him the entire movie comes home and that shows you what love is really is back to your favorite character's point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's who you choose to spend the your nurse. time with. Yeah. It's who you choose to spend your time with. Um, regardless of what others or how you think it should look or how you think it should be. When you know, you just know, go with it. Don't overthink it. And that they were such different looking characters. Yeah. That was such a heartwarming thing is that, the and movie, she, her the genuine, mo- her genuine reaction. The movie made you think one way about her the entire movie, and then when that guy walks in the door, you're like, "Oh my god!" Like she is not as superficial um, and materialistic as I had originally thought. And that movie plays with that idea of making judgments about people from a distance without really knowing what the situation is, what's going on, who is really that person, who's your neighbor. Do you know the person that you're making assumptions about? Yeah. Just because, and even the Doyle character, the cop, says just because you see him coming home with this doesn't automatically assume this about them. And that that is a great message throughout this entire film. And you know what? Yeah. It's another message to always trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart's character, Jeffrey. But dude. He, he knew there was something off and he Lisa trusted. Lisa Fremont. Grace Kelly's character, Lisa Fremont, she ends up getting caught. Oh, yeah. Okay. She ends up getting caught by Lars and in the end and by Raymond Burr's character. Yeah. And he's throwing her around like a rag And if dog. they don't prove it, they're in a whole lot of trouble for causing him grief and harassing him. Mm-hmm. And, and false accusations. Taken down <laughs> to jail. But at the same time, as she didn't tell on him... She's showing Jeffrey over across the way that she knows he can see he's watching. She's got the wedding ring, which is proof, proof that harm came to this woman. Agreed. Um, Guys, that brings us to the rating. Carrie, what did you rate? Now, hold on. There's just something I want to say because we never do find out the motive. That's the one thing about this movie. We never find out the motive. I think it's hinted at, though, with the jewelry and the fact that she was an invalid. I think those two things, it's like, okay, I'm sick of this, or this is something that I do again and again. Either way, he was ready to move on, so much so that he kills her. (laughs) (laughs) Chops her up into little three places. Divorce clearly was not enough because he never would have gotten the jewelry for the money. So there was a motivation. There was a money motivation, yeah. however you cut it up, <laughs> however you slice it. Um, Carrie, what did you rate the classic thriller Rear Window? I gave this four out of five. Oh, same. I rate this one four out of five. It's just such a good movie. It's such a good movie. And never mind that you, you don't get you don't get closure to everything. And that's okay. Yeah, I if mean, somebody this says is a perfect example of that. Yeah, if somebody says top five Hitchcock movies, Rear Windows in the top five. 
easily. Yeah. That that's one of the ones that even the, some of the earlier ones that we mentioned from the '40s and whatnot. Um, those are great, and Hitchcock was well known starting in the '40s. Um, but Rear Window is just one of those right up there with Psycho, Vertigo, um, the Birds, the Birds, Marnie, North suspicion. by Northwest. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just an excellent film, and that's why it gets our overall DFM rating of four out of five flamethrowers. While this is neither one of ours favorite Hitchcock movie, it is no doubt a classic must-see voyeur thriller movie with elements of romance, mystery, and sleuthing. I can't forget the sleuthing part. Horror adjacent, which is just what we like to be a little contrary on our 20th episode of our horror podcast and not do a straight up horror. So ha ha ha. Hitchcock was known for his thrillers. Um, Besides birds, besides psycho, you're not going to get a straight up horror a lot of the time with Hitchcock, but Hey, some of those moments with Lars, the killer neighbor, um, ranks right up there. The way he stares down Jeffries in the dark room from the door entryway. That's everything. That's a horror element right there. I wonder, Carrie, hold up. Just let me get this out before I lose it. I wonder if Bern Gorman for watcher went back and honed in on Raymond Burr's performance for his watcher role. And speaking of that, there's that one scene where he's sitting in the dark, and the only thing that you see is the light of that cigar. I swear watcher took that scene yeah. and incorporated it. How yeah. could you not? How could you have a movie with a high rise yeah. and a guy sitting looking out a window and not say, guys, we need to do our homework. Watch rear window. Yeah. <laughs> um, he had. He just had to have. I'd love to interview Burn Gorman about that. Um Guys, a little note about, oh, wait, before we do that, we've got, here's the male wolf. Okay, Jake the Midnight Traveler is going to weigh in on his experience with Hitchcock and Rear Window. Case and carry. Intelligence. Nothing has caused the human race so much trouble as intelligence. Hello, my hellish hounds of horror. Once again, it's me, Jake. The Midnight Traveler here to tell a tale starring a man born in a hardware store. Mm, Sort of. My guess is that an explanation is in order, as usual. As I've mentioned, and as we all know, the entire crew here running the ship at Dying for Midnight all met while undergrads at Indiana University of Pennsylvania just after the turn of the century. Located about 75 miles east of Pittsburgh, it was a leading choice for many wishing to go into education. For me, it was fairly close to home, but still far enough away for me to try standing on my own two feet. It was also here in 1908 that one James Maitland Stewart was born the eldest child and only son to Elizabeth Ruth and Alexander Maitland Stewart. Stewart's father ran the family business, the J.M. Stewart and Company Hardware Store, located on Philadelphia Street, the main hub and business center of this small college town. James would eventually become Jimmy Stewart, and after conquering Hollywood and the Nazis to boot, he eventually passed away at the ripe old age of 89. Even though he never really went back too much after making it big, His hometown never forgot their favorite son. And a few blocks east of the old family hardware store sits the Jimmy Stewart Museum. 
During my junior year for class credit, I took the trip across campus to see what stuff they managed to dig up from his career. What I walked into was a truly impressive collection of his entire life, and save for his Oscar, they had everything from his personal clothing and costumes down to the very table from his favorite restaurant, all in a very impressive display that any film fan would ogle over. Seriously, if you get a chance, check this place out. It is impressive. The thing that really took me in were the huge posters of every movie he starred in. Now, chronologically placed between The Far Country and The Man from Laramie, was the second of four films Stewart made with the infamous Alfred Hitchcock, Rear Window. Now, thus far, the oldest film we've covered here, being released in 1954, chances are that if you haven't seen this film, you've probably seen it referenced and outright ripped off in any number of places. See the Simpsons Season 6, Episode 1, Bart of Darkness episode. And most famously, due to the lawsuit it resulted in with 2007's Disturbia, and now that I think of it, at least two different Brian De Palma films that we might cover later have all taken a lot from this film. So, with all this hype in the wake of it, how does the actual film itself hold up? Well, when I first took in this shortly after that Sunday afternoon trip to the museum, I came up with the answer. It was an emphatic yes. You have Stewart and Hitchcock arguably at the peaks of their powers and throw in Raymond Burr and Grace Kelly you have this classic piece of American thriller cinema. Now, released just at the beginning of White Flight, this work showed just how close to evil we really can be, even in such a benign setting like the tenants across the courtyard from the apartment of one L.B. Jeff Jeffries, who Jimmy Stewart played, recently incapacitated after an accident on a photo shoot at a racetrack. With nothing to do but kill time, he starts using his binoculars to look into the lives of neighbors, such as a newlywed couple, a pianist, played by Ross Bagdasarian, the creator of the Chipmunks, no less, a pretty dancer nicknamed Miss Torso, a middle-aged couple whose small dog likes digging in the flower garden, and a few others. A real rogues gallery of people that you might find in any given apartment complex. What he finds, or what he thinks he may have found, is something that could put him and anyone he cares for in serious danger. Now, what really works in this film is the concept of our proximity to evil and what role we will play in it. Think about it. If you even think you've seen something, you need to first convince yourself before you can, can try to convince the masses. Did I see it? Was it real? Was I wrong? 
This is just the first level of suspense that the viewer is thrown into. Then, as the mystery unfolds, and you now have the evil facing you and coming for you, and you still don't have anyone who believes you, and you now can't even get away. This is a movie that had and probably still has audiences shouting to the screen, just like Jimmy Stewart, as Grace Kelly is trying to escape from the danger. When this one is rolling, you are right there in the wheelchair with them. As Jimmy works it all out, as he sits there helpless. And that's why this movie will always work. It is timeless. It also (laughs) makes you possibly think twice about who you live next to. What are they like? Do you really know them? Questions never really stop, do they? This is how this movie works. It's a machine that starts your brain to ask questions one after another, after another, after another. Absolutely timeless piece of cinema here. You know, there is a reason why this film has been revisited. And I know that some of you out there avoid anything released before 1980 like the plague. And please, take it from me, fix that shit now. There are countless gems just like this that are just waiting there for you to discover them. And with the internet and streaming and DVDs, chances are you can probably dig up a copy of this fairly easy. And there's another reason why this film has been revisited, reused, and remade with a post-accident Christopher Reeve, no less, in the mid-90s. It's a classic of the highest order and worthy of all of its praise. Paranoia and suspicion, folks, never goes out of style. I think that's probably going to be it for me tonight. I'll probably lock my door extra tight. Now, I can't be certain, but I'm pretty sure that I heard my neighbor either kill a room full of school children or eat takeout from the Cheesecake Factory. God, I don't think I'll ever forget the sounds of those screams. See you next midnight, Jake. Jake, thank you. Guys, a little bit more info if you want to check out the Jimmy Stewart Museum. Go to jimmy.org. Yeah, it's that simple of a, of a website in Indiana, PA, where Carrie and I met. And actually, Carrie, technically, I met Jake before I met you. You did, yeah. It was true love between Jake and I before I met my other true love. No, um, yeah, if you've been listening to our podcast, you probably know the story already. Carrie and I met, been married for uh, going on 16 years, this coming October yeah. the 6th. Yeah. And um, met at IUP, that's in Indiana, PA, birthplace of one James Stewart. Um we are probably going to go back for our anniversary this year. We're talking about it. We're talking about it. They've got the uh, statue <laughs> of Jimmy Stewart on Philly Street, the main street there in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Um, we're going to go to the Jimmy Stewart Museum, hopefully. We're going to um, learn a little bit more about his filmography there, his service, his family, maybe even interview the folks that work there. Um, 
And they've also got a very unique small theater there, a 50-seat retro theater right in there that plays nothing but Jimmy Stewart matinees. And I believe, Carrie, when we go there, they're going to be playing rope. Okay. So stay tuned for that later in the season. Guys, that brings us to intermission. Little reminder, we've got our $4 Patreon ghoul tier where, hey, you pay us that 4 bucks, you send in an audio clip, we'll review a movie for you, you school us on why you think it's an awesome movie. And guys, again, next week is the Kim's Crypt bonus episode. Check that one out if you're looking for somewhere to travel, haunted attraction-wise, this coming fall. Just know she's not only open during spooky season, September and October, she's got the Kim's Crypt miss with just the haunted light display for the kids too. Uh, she's also got halfway to Halloween for those uh, Walt Purgis not fans. And she's got paranormal investigations. Yeah. She used to have, she doesn't do them anymore. I'd love for him to do it again. The uh, She does have an anything goes night. Yeah, too. one night. One night every spooky season. And you, you don't s- have to. You don't have to do it. You sign a waiver, you put on the glow stick necklace, they're allowed to touch you throw you around Put all that kind tape. of good stuff duct tape throw you in it throw you in the hearse check her out scariest haunted attraction and the most fun we've ever had mm-hmm. it's not just straight up scary it is fun as hell no. if you're a seasoned haunted attraction horror hound five different attractions to scare the bejesus out of you we're going to take a break from the movie reviews for a couple of weeks bonus episode will play next when we come back on july 7th episode 21 fourth of july special to kick off beach party bonfires and blood month we've got an episode we call truth justice in the american way aka we're talking about dirt bikes on a beach with vampires the lost boys modern vampire classic episode 22 july 14th blood beach which we started watching (laughs) and we've got some interesting (laughs) thoughts about blood beach especially burt young's character uh, we call that one John Saxon should be the Amity Police Chief. <laughs> Episode 23, July 21st, The Beach House, which is on shutter. At least there's no poop in their suitcase. Yep. And yeah, that's a white lo- lotus nod. Um, Episode 24, July 28th, we've got one of two werewolf movies we're going to be talking about. The Howling, a.k.a. Adopt a Steve Wallace. That does it for segment one. Come segment two, or etc., you join us for that carrie is talking the at times time traveling time folding voyeurism adjacent really it's a thriller novel by the light of the moon by dean Koontz. guys love you see you for segment two hey fellas don't fight over that hot dog there's plenty for everyone big plump and juicy wrapped in an oven fresh bun add mustard relish ketchup and go to work Yes, the hot dogs at our refreshment center are the best you'll find anywhere. Everybody agrees on that. Three minutes till showtime. Okay, guys, we are back for segment two, horror, etc. Carrie, what book 
are you going to be talking about today? The very first book you ever bought me. Ooh. Now she just, now her and the kids just buy stuff through Amazon. We're like, yeah, I want that. Okay, put it in the cart. Yeah, I want that on Kindle. Go ahead and buy it. No, but nobody I, buys I, books anymore in this I, family. I, we've had books on Kindle. And while it's nice at the beach, it's nice to read on the Kindle. I still really enjoy. It was meant to be. The physical. You and my mom and books. the Dean Koontz books. Yep. I, I remember your eyes lighting up the first time you heard from my mom that she loved Dean Koontz and she had all these Dean Koontz books she, she was going to give passed, you. Yeah, she's passed on a lot of those books and it's just like, ooh, I don't, <laughs> I don't have enough, quite enough time to read all of those all, all this time, but any chance I get, I love reading. So Carrie, what made you want to talk about By the Light of the Moon this episode? Well, I've been wanting to talk about it for a while. Uh, I recently reread this book. And it's a really good book. Um, It is more of a thriller type movie, but it's about two brothers who travel because one, he does art and he sells art. So he paints is his job. How old are the brothers roughly? I would say they're definitely one's upper 20s. One is like probably 20. Mm -hmm. Do you recall... Um, the setting of this book. It's actually, they're traveling to Santa Fe. They're on their way to Santa Fe to an art festival. Gotcha. And And, they're holed up into a motel for the time being is when the story starts. Mm -hmm. Um, But the younger brother is autistic. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So. And we've got our own personal connection with zombie toots. Um, He's got a, uh, he's neurodivergent. Um, ODD, ADD, ADD, SPD. Um, he's got a delay from being premature. Yeah. And we're actually getting him re-diagnosed for potentially, we think Asperger's. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very, very telling that I've been reading this and this, I mean, it just made the book made so much, meant so much more to me reading it this time. Just in while our son is high functioning, it's just at times it really spoke to me. Yeah. Um, but they unintentionally meet up with a comedian, a female <laughs> comedian. I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they're kind of forced into this relationship with her. Okay. Um, they all get kidnapped by this mad scientist. who injects them with this special nanotechnology. And he doesn't really tell them what's in it. Hmm. He just kidnaps them and injects them. Is there, is there like a synopsis from the back cover or something you can read? Yeah. Yeah. But you know me. (laughs) I'm not not trying to rain on your coon spray here, but, um, but basically you have the two brothers, Dylan and Shepard. They are forced into meeting Jillian, AKA Jilly. And they have to try to survive after being, like I said, kidnapped by the mad scientist who injects them with the psychotropic nanotechnology. It either enhances your personality and gives you powers, or it can decrease your intelligence. Um, so basically, the autistic brother, Shep, he can fold through time and space. Ooh. It's very interesting. 
that part, it was probably one of my favorite sections in the book. I might have zoned out whenever you said this, but did is that with his mind he can do that? Okay. He Well, with his mind, but he also pinches... Like, <laughs> like our son pinches. Yes, like people? our son pinches. Yes, Jesus. and this is this is what I was like when I was reading this. I was like, oh my goodness. He pinches in the air, and he folds, and he goes to a certain place. I'm envisioning like Minority Report where he's swiping the air. Okay, so he literally grabs he, time. Yes, he grabs and Ooh. he folds. It, it's very interesting. Cool. Yeah, and so Dylan, his older brother. He touches items and he gets these, not visions, but he gets this feeling that he has to go to a certain location to save certain people. So he's basically your hero and he has this, he's a good guy and he just, he can, can't help but want to help people. And, and, and then the comedian, Jilly, she gets visions. She doesn't know how to control them. She doesn't know what they mean. It takes her a long time to figure it out. But she also learns how to fold like Shep. Huh. Shep teaches her how to fold, and she learns how to fold. So that's the really interesting part to you, this book. Do you know how to fold laundry? All the time. It's just a matter of choice if you really want to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they... So on one hand, they're they're fighting these powers that they get and they're scared and at the same time they're fighting they're hiding from the government the government wants to get rid of them because of what they may be capable of but in the end they save people and it's kind of this wild ride of them trying to hide from the government and save people interesting yeah and it all comes together and there's a past moment that comes into the book which actually is very heart-wrenching that you find out yeah don't do too many spoilers there's a long there's a backstory within the story yeah um have they made this into a movie or tv movie or anything like that not that i'm aware and it really it really would make a great movie Hmm. it really would now is this the only this isn't like a series of books with it because you know they have the odd thomas books and there's a lot of them yeah and And there's the i think the moonlight bay is another series from okay. Coons, but th- this is not part of that's that. Standalone. This, is, this is standalone. I think that's even more of a reason they should do it because they won't have to feel the need to connect it to anything else. It could be just its own story. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Can you, can you read the back of the book for everybody? Cause I know that like for me and think about people that aren't yeah, big and, book and readers. This, like is, you. this is how I determine if I want to read a book too. Yeah. On the road, on a hot Arizona night, Dylan O'Connor is overpowered by a stranger who ejects him with unknown substance. All he's told is that he's the carrier. Not of a disease, but of something wondrous that will transform his life in remarkable ways if it doesn't kill him in the next 24 hours. Now, Dylan, his autistic brother Shep, and another carrier, a young woman, are swept into a desperate search for the shattering truth of what they are and what they might become. But first, they must elude those sent to destroy them. Their only chance to survive is to discover the meaning of the messages that Shep, with precious time running out, begins to repeat about a man who does his work by the light of the moon. Ooh. Carrie, do us a favor and read. Can you read us the first chapter out of this book? 
Would you mind doing that? Sure. Okay. Chapter one. Shortly before being knocked unconscious and bound to a chair before being injected with an unknown substance against his will and before discovering that the world was deeply mysterious in ways he'd never before imagined, Dylan O'Connor left his motel room and walked across the highway to a brightly lighted fast food franchise to buy cheeseburgers, (laughs) french fries, pocket pies, and apple filling and a vanilla milkshake. I'm getting hungry over here. Oh, that sounds good. The expired day lay buried in the earth, in the asphalt. Unseen, but felt, its ghost haunted the Arizona night. A hot spirit rising lazily from every inch of ground that Dylan crossed. Here, at the end of town that served travelers from the nearby interstate, formidable batteries of colorful electric signs warred for customers, in spite of this bright battle, however, an impressive sea of stars gleamed from the horizon to horizon, for the air was clear and dry. A westbound moon, as round as a ship's wheel, plied the starry ocean. The vastness above appeared clean and full of promise, but the world at ground level looked dusty, weary. Rather than being combed by a single wind, the night was plated with many breezes, each with an individual quality of whispery speech and a unique scent, redolent of the desert grit, of cactus pollen, of diesel fumes, of hot black top. The air curdled as Dylan drew near to the restaurant, thickened with an aroma of long-used deep-fryer oil with hamburger grease smoking on a griddle. With fried onion vapors nearly as thick as black damp. Dean Koontz was hungry when he wrote this first chapter, I think. I would think so. If he hadn't been in a town unfamiliar to him, if he hadn't been tired after a day on the road, and if his younger brother Shepard hadn't been in a puzzling mood, Dylan would have sought a restaurant with healthier fare. Shep wasn't currently able to cope in public. However, And when in this condition, he refused to eat anything but comfort food with high-fat content. The restaurant was brighter inside than out. Most services were white, and in spite of the well-greased air, the establishment looked antiseptic. Contemporary culture fit Dylan O'Connor only about as well as a three-finger glove. And here was one more place where the tailoring pinched. He believed that a burger joint ought to look like a joint, not like a surgery, not like a nursery with pictures of clowns and funny animals on the walls, not like a bamboo pavilion on a tropical island, not like a glossy plastic replica of a 1950s diner that never actually existed. If you were going to eat charred cow smothered in cheese with a side order of potato strips, made as crisp as ancient papyrus by (laughs) immersion in boiling oil. And if you were going to wash it all down with either satisfying quantities of icy beer or a milkshake containing the caloric equivalent of an entire roasted pig, then this fabulous consumption ought to be, ought to occur in an ambience that virtually screened guilty pleasure, if not sin. The lighting should be low and warm. Surfaces should be dark, preferably old mahogany. Tarnished brass, wine-colored upholstery, 
Music should be provided to soothe the carnivore, not the music that made your gore that made your gorge rise in an elevator because it was played by musicians steeped in Prozac. But tunes that were as sensuous as the food. Perhaps early rock and roll or a big band swing or good country music about temptation and remorse and beloved dogs. Nevertheless, he crossed the ceramic tile floor to a stainless steel counter where he placed his takeout order with a plump woman whose white hair, well-scrubbed look, and candy-striped uniform made her a dead ringer for Mrs. Santa Claus. He half expected to see an elf (laughs) peek out of her shirt pocket. In distant days, counters and fast food outlets had been manned largely by teenagers. In recent years, however, a significant number of teens considered such work to be beneath them, which opened the door to retirees looking to supplement their social security checks. (laughs) Mrs. Santa Claus called Dylan (laughs) Deer, delivered his order in two white paper bags, and reached across the counter to pin a promotional button to his shirt. The button featured the slogan, Fries, not flies, and the grinning green face of a cartoon toad whose conversion from the traditional diet of his warty species to such taste treats as half-pound bacon cheeseburgers was chronicled in the company's current advertising campaign. Here was that three-finger glove again. (laughs) Dylan didn't understand why he should be expected to weigh the endorsement of a cartoon toad or sports star or Nobel laureate, for that matter, when deciding what to eat for dinner. Furthermore, he didn't understand why an advertisement assuring him that the restaurant's french fries were tastier than house flies should charm him. Their fries better have a superior flavor to a bag full of insects. He withheld his anti-toad opinion also because lately he had begun to realize that he was allowing himself to be annoyed by too many inconsequential things. If he didn't mellow out, he would sour into a world-class... curmudgeon by the age of 35 (laughs) he smiled at mrs claus and thanked her lest otherwise he ensure an anthracite christmas outside under the fat moon crossing the three-lane highway to the motel carrying paper bags full of fragrant cholesterol in a variety of formats dylan reminded himself of some of the many things for which he should be thankful good health nice teeth great hair youth He was 29. He possessed a measure of artistic talent and had work that he found both meaningful and enjoyable. Although he was in no danger of getting rich, he sold his pings often enough to cover expenses and to bank a little money every month. He had no disfiguring facial scars, no persistent fungus problem, no troublesome evil twin, no spells of amnesia from which he awoke with bloody hands, no inflamed hangernails, and he had shepherd. Simultaneously a blessing and a curse. Shep in his best moments made Dylan glad to be alive and happy to be his brother. Under a red neon motel sign where Dylan's traveling shadow painted a pure black upon the neon rouged blacktop. And then when he passed squat sago plants and spiky cactuses and other hearty dessert landscaping. Desert landscaping, apparently I'm hungry too. <laughs> and also while he followed the concrete walkways that served the motel and certainly when he passed the humming 
and softly clinking soda vending machines lost in thought, brooding about the soft chains of family commitment, he was stalked. <coughs> Excuse me. Charai, go on. So stealthy was the approach that the stalker must have matched him step for step, breath for breath, at the door of his room. Clutching bags of food, fumbling with his key, he heard too late a betraying scrape of shoe leather. Dylan turned his head, rolled his eyes, glimpsed a looming moon pale face, and sensed as much as he saw the dark blur of something arching down towards his skull. Strangely, he didn't feel the blow and wasn't aware of falling. He heard the paper bags crackle, smelled onions, smelled warm cheese, smelled pickle chips, realized that he was face down on the concrete, and hoped that he hadn't spilled Shep's milkshake. Then he dreamed a little dream of dancing french fries. Oh, thank you. That's a good preview of that. And it did not open how I expected it to open. As somebody who knows nothing about that book, I thought it was going to open with some kind of eerie moment or somebody gets killed or some kind of mysterious, like time warp moment that gets you hooked or whatever but really just that's a lot of detail just about that him being at that place to eat and all the detail about the food um i can only imagine the amount of detail that's in the rest of that book just based off of that opening chapter um guys real quick we're gonna go now now that carrie has uh, given us a preview of by the light of the moon by dean Koontz. We're going to finish out our episode 20, Rear Window, Horror, etc. by talking about the top 10 voyeurism flicks. <coughs> it's all right now, Carrie. He'll be done real soon. Thanks, Jimmy. Um, number 10, The Creepy American Beauty. Oh, I remember Which gets this. creepier every year that passes, if you know what I mean. And you do. And I think you do. Um... Number nine, that's all we're going to say about American Beauty. Uh, Ex Machina, the AI android, um, you know, Bill Gates-like creator in, what, the Catskills or something like that? Some kind of hideaway, mansion hideaway. And um, Oscar Isaac, the, uh, what is it, uh, Gleason is the other guy in it, uh, falls in love with the AI uh, has some sexy times with the AI mm-hmm. and the AI definitely uses that to her advantage. Yes. She uses the two stupid men to her advantage. Some shades of Westworld in that movie, by the way, number eight, Scarlett Johansson and under the skin. And Ooh, that is a creepy that, ass movie. That is, Oh my God. The scene about every time she's walking and luring the men in, Oh, that's just so creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't see where they're going. They end up in the alien pool of whatever that is. Uh, number seven, this movie keeps coming up in our countdowns. One hour photo with Robin Williams. There is a definite voyeur thing. He's watching their every move, judging them. Um, number six, and you wouldn't think of this one as a voyeur movie except for the old lady who lives in the barn who's watching the 20 somethings make a porno stalking them stalking them um obsessing over them admiring them wanting to have some sex herself it's been a while yeah (laughs) x by t west at number six number five we've got charlie brewster you're so cool brewster 
as the voyeur this time. Yes. Just, he needs to mind his own business and the events of this movie wouldn't even happen. Yep. Do you know how much trouble you caused me, boy? That's right. Number five is Fright Night. Fright Night. Oh, Charlie. I'm going to do my Peter Vincent voice. Um, number four, guys. Before I, I butcher Peter Vincent anymore. <laughs> we just reviewed this a few episodes ago. We got the great Micah Monroe and Byrne Gorman in another Rear Window-esque movie, Watcher but this time in Romania. Number three, we've got Tom Hanks and the ultimate multiple voyeurs and a neighbor, uh, surveying and stalking the new creepy neighbors. It's kind of like a reverse stalking movie. Yeah. And they get more, they learn more about these neighbors than they ever wanted, wanted to know. To know. Yep. Great cast in that movie. Oh, fantastic. Number, the burbs. Number two. You'd think we would mention the original, but I'll give it an honorable mention. Psycho gets honorable mention, but Psycho 2 belongs at number three in our Top 10 Voyeurism Flicks Countdown. Uh, that one's got the really... I had a thing for Meg Tilly in this movie. Uh, this one has got our main killer uh, doing a lot of peephole type stuff in this movie. Uh, yeah, we're talking Psycho 2 at number two. It's my favorite Psycho movie outside of the original. Um, and I think there's, what, four or five of them now? There's the yeah. show. They tried doing, like, a TV show back in the 80s or 90s. The, that was Bates Motel. That was, it was definitely, I thought, late 90s, maybe 2000s. No, I know which one you're talking about. This isn't that. Oh, you're talking about a different one. I'm not, yeah, I'm not talking about the one that was streaming. No. Yeah. No. Number one. Hey, what else? Rear Window. Yeah. This has got to be the number one voyeur movie out there. I know there's movies like Peeping Tom. Uh, there's a voyeur element to Friday the 13th. Um, but yeah, uh, voyeurism and stalking tends to go hand in hand as subgenres. Guys, that does it for Horror Etc. Again, reminder, Kim's Crypt bonus episode in two weeks. Beach Party Bonfires and Blood Month. We'll be coming at you with some surf rock, some water, some bonfires, some bloody waves, some vampires, some werewolves, some subterranean beach creatures with John Saxon, and some really depressing family members that just, it's depressing. But there's no poop in the suitcase. We love you guys. Take it easy. Peace out.